Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm doing my talk show Tai Chi right now. So uh, because, in fact, um, we had three different conversations planned for today. Uh, Two of them we will be having. But the third one, which was about Paul Manafort, uh, the close advisor to Donald Trump with a kind of colorful, to put it mildly, history of of advising and just advising, lobbying for and, and engineering the political successes of a number of foreign dictators, uh, for want of a better word. Um, uh, he is now, as we say, the chief advisor to Trump. We were going to have a conversation about him with Franklin Four. There's been a little medical emergency, nothing too bad, I don't think, but uh, it means that we will not be doing that, which probably means we're going to open up the final segment of the show today to your phone calls, uh, which I'm looking forward to, and which you seem to enjoy doing on Mondays, too. So that is to come. Uh, In the uh, second segment today, we're going to talk about, and this may engender some phone calls, too, kind of an interesting proposal in West Hartford, where a private company would come in, take over the campus of the University of Connecticut in West Hartford, uh, use it as an academy for uh, visiting students mainly from China, and then those students would transfer uh, into the West Hartford Public Schools, bringing with them a pretty hefty tuition fee. In other words, basically, West Hartford would be effectively selling space in its public school system, um, and which at a time of under-enrollment may or may not make sense. Anyway, we'll come to all that, but uh, we're going to begin uh, first with comedy, uh, and but maybe the toughest comic room there is in the world. You know, most um, societies do have built in, even the most highly controlled societies historically have built in this notion of maybe once a year a suspension of the rules in favor of comic antics, the notion of a feast of fools with a lord of misrule. You know, a peasant would be placed in charge for 24 hours and funny stuff would happen and you didn't have to respect the king and, and all the rules would go out the window. So Washington's version of that is the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The only problem being that D.C. doesn't ever really buy into this. I mean, it's supposed to be this night where everything's, everything's on the table for, for a comic display. Uh, anything can be said uh, and everybody's supposed to laugh at it. And then they all show up and they don't laugh. Uh, America may laugh, but the people in the room don't laugh. It's a tough room comically. Well, on Saturday night, a middle-aged uh, black comedian just killed with just incredible razor-sharp material, impeccable timing, uh, and superlative delivery. Kind of unfortunately for Larry Wilmore, it was President Obama, uh, who, if if he's wondering what to do with himself when this whole thing is over, I I would imagine he'll have have every possibility uh, ahead of him. But he could probably play arenas with the chops this guy has, and anybody who has to follow him is in big trouble, which is uh, what happened to Larry Wilmore last night. Now, Larry Wilmore did some pretty cool stuff, too. We'll talk about that. Eric Eric Diggins is here with us. He joins us frequently. Uh, He, of course, is NPR's TV critic and the author of Race Bader, How the Media wields dangerous words to divide a nation. So, Eric Deggins, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. So this is, uh, of course, Obama's um, last White House Correspondents' Dinner. Um, he's good at this. I mean, he's, like, really good at this. And, and he gets laughs from people who probably don't want to give him laughs. Uh, he, you know, he really is in a very tough room. I mean, maybe when you're, in the, when you're the president, you just kind of get laughs. But I think he earns what he gets. Oh, he's he's incredibly funny. And 
Um, not only is he somebody who has a natural charisma and is very comfortable delivering comedic lines, um, he's he's also got some of the best joke writers in the business mm-hmm. uh, who get together and help work up this material. And from what I understand, uh, he takes it very seriously. He wants to be funny. And um, I think um, definitely the last uh, two correspondence dinners, um, I feel as if he's been funnier than the professional comic that they hired to come in and, and, and entertain the room. Let's hear a, a little bit of President Obama on Saturday night. Meanwhile, on the Republican side, things are a little more, how shall we say this, a little more loose. Just look at the confusion over the invitations to tonight's dinner. Guests were asked to check whether they wanted steak or fish, but instead, a whole bunch of you wrote in Paul Ryan. That's not an option, people. Steak or fish. (laughs) You may not like steak or fish, but that's your choice. All right, um, Eric Deggins, I mean, he has another tremendous advantage here. He's um, a man who has less and less to, to lose. He, he's, he really is at the tail end of something. Uh, and in m- many ways that have kind of tinctured the last six to nine months of his presidency, where he feels a little bit more free swinging for the bleachers and maybe pursuing something as a matter of conviction rather than running these close political calculations. Here, you know, I mean, he really does feel pretty free to make fun of everybody, and, and he does. Well, I, I mean, again, he's always done that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think people are are um, they're taking the circumstances of the moment and they're applying them to what's happened here in a way uh, that may or may not be true. I mean, it's it's certainly true that in his, in his last year, there's been a sense that uh, Obama um, hasn't had to worry as much about the long game and that he's been freer to do and say um, things without without as much calculation. But um, I think when he comes to the correspondence dinner, he's always viewed it as a way to sort of good-naturedly poke fun at everyone. Um, his, the, I mean, he told a Joe Biden joke. I mean, he, yeah. he, he makes fun of, of, of everyone, and, but he does it in a way that I think um, people take it as it's intended. Now, um, I think our current political situation is so absurd and so extreme that that is what is making the jokes uh, more extreme. He's, you know, he they're they're, they're play, the the song they played before he started talking was called you know you, you're going to miss me when I'm gone, right. and his first line was uh, you can't you can't admit it but you know it's true, yeah. <laughs> and 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 that isn't uh, a sign of him not caring. That's a sign of him responding to the politics of the moment and the circumstances of the moment. And I think that is what has made this moment feel uh, so so singular, because uh, he's commenting on uh, a situation that is just, um, we, we would not have imagined it even uh, a couple of years ago. Right. And, and, and now there are other things which we are being asked to imagine. Uh, and although he did make a joke saying, you know, somebody else will be here, uh, a year from now, so somebody else will be standing in my place. We have no way of knowing who she will be. Uh, and he gets a laugh out of that. But the truth is the crowd is also imagining another person standing in that place. Uh, and, and, and that really would be 
uh, um, a difficult thing to comprehend. I mean, how would Donald Trump as president go about satirizing his own status when so much of what he does on a daily basis appears to already fall into that category? I I don't know. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think people have constantly underestimated Donald Trump's ability to perform. Yes. Uh, so I, I think uh, if he should get a chance to uh, do what uh, Barack Obama has done here at the uh, Correspondents' Dinner, uh, I'm sure he'd handle it better than a lot of people assume he would. Um, but, I, you know, what's interesting to me about this president is this is a president who's always had an ease with the entertainment media. He's always been very comfortable going on talk shows or going on YouTube videos or, uh, you know, appearing in these sort of unorthodox environments. And you hear the, the inevitable chirping of people saying, oh, it's not presidential or, oh, it's not traditional. But I think Obama has realized that, um, you know, number one, he, he shines in these settings. He's, um, he's, he comes across best when he's in a, an environment where he's just allowed to, um, to be himself and, uh, and, and let his natural charisma and sense of humor kind of take over. So I, I think uh, the White House is always eager to get him in situations where he can do that between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis or, um, you know, um, going on The Daily Show and having, you know, serious policy debates with, with Jon Stewart. Um, you know, they, they recognize that he's in his element uh, when he does these kind of things. And, and the White House Correspondents' Center, I think, is the ultimate expression of that because he's supposed to get up there and essentially be a stand-up comedian uh, for 20 minutes, um, you know, facing the creme de la creme of uh, the White House press corps and of uh, show business now because they invite so many celebrities. And he does it so well that he's better than the professional comics who come in there. And, and, and in particular this year, you know, uh, Barack Obama was able to strike this tone of sort of he was telling jokes that were incisive and that turned on something very telling about the moment. You know, he would tell a joke about uh, Hillary Clinton um, you know, reaching out to young voters, being like your aunt trying to use Facebook, <laughs> yes. you know. And, and on the one hand, it's very telling. That, mm. that, is, that is very much a weakness of hers. But on the other hand, it was presented in such a, hey, we're just joking around with you kind of way, um, that, that, that everybody took it as a good-natured kind of dig. Whereas Larry Wilmore, when he came on um, and he insulted Wolf Blitzer and CNN in the Situation Room, he did it in a way that was so in your face and that was so uh, sort of brutally insulting um, that there wasn't a way to take that as a good-natured joke. He didn't quite know how to um, deliver that kind of stuff to the room in a way that it would accept it as a, as a good-natured ribbing rather than kind of an insulting, um, you know, in-your-face um, denigration. And so that, to me, was the difference between the two uh, performances that we saw on Saturday night. Barack Obama knew how to to deliver these, well, number one, I thought his set was funnier, but also he was able to do it in a way that brought you into the joke, that brought the, 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 the people who were ostensibly the butt of the joke into the joke, and everybody could laugh about it, whereas Wilmore's material is much more about singling out subjects and just kind of um, taking pot shots at them. And the other part of this is that President Obama for seven years has taken more than his fair share of slings and arrows, and this is an opportunity for him, as you say, in the most good-natured and comically polished way to turn some of that stuff around. Uh, let's hear him talking about Ted Cruz. 
Ted had a tough week. He went to Indiana. Hoosier country. Stood on a basketball court and called the hoop a basketball ring. What else is in his lexicon? Baseball sticks, football hats. But sure, I'm the foreign one. Big applause line and a little bit of re- revenge there. He is really good at that. Uh, and uh, Eric Deggins, uh, he, 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 he got big laughs. And Wilmore didn't. And there's a lot of reasons for that, including the fact that, as so many comics coming in there before have found, and you're absolutely right. I'm a, I'm a, I, like you, I'm a Larry Wilmore fan. And I thought some of this stuff was just sort of almost boilerplate roast material as opposed to the kind of incisive surgical stuff that, that we hear him do with some regularity. But it's also just a tough room. I mean, that audience is primed not to laugh. And, you know, Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, all kinds of people have found that place a tough place to get a laugh. Well, I would say that um, if you've ever been to a live comedy show, you know that um, if, so, if if you're following somebody who's funny, it's it's uh, it's the best and, and and worst thing that can happen, because um, if you're following somebody who's been really funny, the audience has already been laughing, and I think they're predisposed to want to laugh more. Uh, but they will also constantly be comparing you to the person who just who they just saw. So um, so it may be a tough room, but. Barack Obama killed that room, mm-hmm. and he and he killed that room with humor that was funny. And they also had um, a, a couple of uh, prepared, uh, pre-taped bits. Um, the the last one with him and John Boehner kind of hanging out mm-hmm. that was uh, just really funny and also kind of touching because again, you got the sense that that Barack Obama was saying, "Look, you know, for a night." Let's let go of all of this partisan craziness that has been, you know, distorting our politics, and let's just have fun with each other. And 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 so it was uh, the the thing that's that's sad about that moment. I mean, it, it's weird, you know, being a, a media critic. I watched that and I laughed and I thought it was great, but there was a part of me that thought it was sad too, because I thought to myself, you know, Boehner has to be out of office, and. And Obama has to be on his way out of office before they can even do something like this. And it's and it's it's a sad commentary on where politics is that these two guys, once you know the dust essentially clears, you know they can make a fun video together and presumably spend a, a little bit of fun time with each other. Um, but they couldn't do that when they were in their jobs, when we needed them to get things done for the American people. And so, uh, in a, in an odd way, that video was uh, was funny and and surprising, but also a little sad. Now, Larry comes on and he has to follow that, but the audience is also loosened up, and mm-hmm. they've been laughing at the president for 20 minutes. So, I, I feel like the first couple of minutes he had some goodwill, but that 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 CNN Wolf Blitzer joke was early in his set, and I think it just uh, you know it. it, it the audience turned on him, and um, 
Now, what Colbert did, I, I've heard Larry say, and I don't know if this is, uh, I don't know if he feels that way now, but I, I thought I heard Larry say uh, before he did um, his set that he was inspired by Stephen Colbert's uh, performance at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And when Stephen Colbert did it, he, of course, he did it as the character that he played on the Colbert Report, mm-hmm. uh, and he did it in front of George W. Bush. And he basically delivered a monologue that was not for anybody in the room. It was it was for the cameras, and it was for the wider world. And he figured um, that it would play much differently to people who watched it on video or people who saw the clips then it would play to people who were there and had to be in the same room as the president while he was essentially making fun of, you know, every, um, you know, sort of uh, political uh, viewpoint that the president held. Now, um, Colbert was right. Uh, it did play differently. I don't think that it worked that way for Larry. I, I think I think his jokes, the way they landed in the room is the way they came across on television, too. And, and, and that's too bad because he, he is a great comic. Um, but it, but in this moment, those jokes, I think, were just a little too harsh, and they didn't feel like he was welcoming the media in on the joke. They, they, he was just um, kind of beating them like a pinata. And, and, and so, of course, they're not going to react well mm-hmm. to that. Um, I want to come back to that whole question of sort of the multiple reactions uh, to Colbert or anybody and and possibly to Wilmore. I'm not even sure we've entirely been able to parse the multiple reactions out there in the outside world to him and to what he did. Um, I will say that, you know, I think what one of Larry Wilmore's strengths is he looks and sounds kind of like a bank president. You know, if you walked into, you know, a, a good sized bank in, in a, a you know, medium sized city and he walked out to greet you as the out of the president's office, you think, yeah, that guy, he looks like he's a bank president. So when he <laughs> sets things up like that, you know, in this kind of and, you know, his his manner of speaking would not be out of place in some kind of stuffy uh, Upper West Side dinner party. And then when he hits you with something that's pretty transgressive, I, there was a joke, a very uh, you know, inappropriate, but I thought hilarious. I mean, very inappropriate ordinarily, but I thought hilarious joke that I am not going to repeat on public radio involving Andrew Jackson and Ben Carson. And it it, it, it wouldn't be. See, you're he laughing the, too. He used the J word. Yeah, he used the J word. You know, if D if D L Hewley did that joke, it wouldn't be funny. But coming out of Larry Wilmore, because he seems like he's a ben, when when he says that, it's like a bank president saying it, and and there's a little extra shock that goes along with that, uh, and he can really get you laughing that way. But you know, we keep talking about this, um, uh, the CNN uh, moment. We haven't played any of Larry Wilmore. So let's hear clip two. This is uh, what uh, Eric Deggins has been talking about. But I have to say, it's great. It looks like you're really enjoying your last year of the uh, presidency. Um, saw you hanging out uh, with NBA players like Steph Curry, Golden State Warriors. That was cool. That was cool, yeah. You know, it kind of makes sense, too, because both of you like raining down bombs on people from long distances, right? <laughs> What? Am I wrong? (laughs) Speaking of drones, how is Wolf Blitzer still on television? (laughs) Ask a follow-up question. Good. (laughs) Hey, Wolf, I'm ready to project tonight's winner. Anyone that isn't watching the Situation Room. (laughs) Oh. 
All right. So one thing is you do have to kind of know your audience and people are kind of shouting back at him. And part of this is and it's it's it is a tough thing that the comedian always faces, which is that many or perhaps even most of the relationships inside the room are much stronger than those people will ever have to the comedian. So people from the Beltway, people who go to Georgetown dinner parties, people who all know one another and have known each other for a long time, that so-called permanent government of Washington, D.C., they're all sitting there together. The stranger that they know very little of is standing up at the podium, making fun one by one of them. But their loyalties are very much to each other. Their protectiveness is very much towards each other. They're already anticipating the moment that he swings over and starts attacking them. So it, it, to, to do it roast style is a risk. I, you know, I don't, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but I don't agree. I know um, uh, a lot of these people, you know, I, I know, uh, I, I, I know Jake Tapper, I know Wolf, I don't know him very well, but I know them. And, you know, I would say um, that if the joke was the way, as like I said, the president did it, where he was sort of in, inviting you along to laugh, if you're the subject of the joke, kind of inviting you along to laugh. Now, the Ted Cruz stuff was pretty tough, but, but his jokes about Biden, his jokes about Hillary Clinton, um, you know, those jokes were um, not just, hey, you're dumb or hey you're stupid they were kind of like hey you know you got a problem reaching out to young people don't you you know <laughs> and 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 they're sort of encouraged to laugh along with uh the joke um to 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 uh i mean you heard how sort of spot on this the the wolf blitzer joke was mm-hmm. it was basically you're boring yeah and your show and your so your show's terrible well the, you know it, it who can laugh along with that? Mm. You know, that's that's not a joke you can really join in on. You can only really feel insulted by it. And it doesn't, by the way, really tell you anything, give you any insight. Um, you know, it's not a sophisticated joke about, you know, what, what Wolf Blitzer does that is so boring or why the Situation Room is a terrible show. If, 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 if he had found a way to poke fun in a way that, you know, maybe – um, invites Wolf Blitzer to laugh at himself or invites CNN to laugh at themselves, I think it might have been um, it, w- it might have been received a little better. I mean, th- those of us who work in media, we tell jokes about each other all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So it's not like people are sitting around going, mm, I can't believe he made fun of us. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't, you know, there are some people who are thin-skinned about that stuff, but I think a lot of people who work in media, we're always joking about how absurd the things are that we wind up doing uh, or how crazy the news can be sometimes and our and, and how weird our response can be to it sometimes. Oh, yeah. No, so, I've, look, I've so seen... I, I've, I think it's possible to tell those jokes and win that room over, but you just can't do it by just insulting them spot on the way the way he did. No, you're absolutely right about that. I've seen Robert Siegel's eight-minute set, and it is tight. And I can't <laughs> believe he goes some of those places. He's crazy. Um, so at the end, there was kind of a more sincere moment, which I think most people agree kind of worked, maybe right up until the last word, uh, where, where Wilmore said something something that I think is very real for him. I mean, talking really about what it's been like to watch 
another African-American man be in the spotlight, even as Wilmore's career is ascendant, go through the, the gauntlet, suffer the slings and arrows and, and, and go out, you know, in a good fashion. And, and so, I mean, he said something. He clearly meant it. Uh, he, he chose to even go there to use uh, a version of the um, N word uh, in a very affection approving laudatory way. Uh, and but he, in doing that, he was inviting the kind of autopsy that these things get, even if they're right. supposed to be funny. So it got autopsied a lot of different ways. Right, Eric? Oh, yeah. And I, and I do think, um, I mean, that moment, what was interesting to me about that moment when he used the N-word at the end was that um, that does sort of sum up, I think, a specific way that a lot of black folks feel about Obama, mm-hmm. that regardless of what you think of his politics or what he's advocated for or not advocated for, in the end, we're closing out on eight years um, of an African-American president. And um, that is a momentous thing for black people. That's a momentous thing for us all, but it's particularly a momentous thing for black people who have often felt like we have never been fully accepted as part of the institutions in America. And so um, I think what Larry was doing, in a way, was signifying that and sort of saying, you know, there's a part of all of us black folks who are going to be proud of you because you prove that we're a part of America in a way that many of us thought we never could be in our lifetimes. And, you know, I've had this conversation with several people, um, black people especially, where we said, you know, like my daughter's 11, and she's never really known a country without a black president. Mm -hmm. I mean, to her, it's the most natural thing in the world to think that she could be president. And for me, when I was her age, I'd never known a black president and, and, and never thought it would be possible, you know. So to have that kind of change, to have him just the fact of who he is um, and, 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 uh, and, and, with the, and what he's done, um, you know, to ascend to that job, to, to have him bring that kind of change for all of us black folks in America, I think that's what he was signifying in an, in an, in an odd way. And um, and so I'm not worried about that use of the N-word. I know I saw, for example, on CBS this morning that Gail King uh, was a little um, ruffled by it and said she was at a table with some muckety-mucks and they were kind of looking at each other weird. And, you know, that moment, you know, was not really for them. <laughs> to be honest, that moment uh, was for, uh, you know, people who are not at the muckety-muck table, uh, but people who are out there in the world um, and and feel a little differently about America and about the chances for them and their children to to, to be a part of America uh, because of what Obama achieved. You know, regardless of what you think of him politically, uh, and and so it may sound like I'm putting a lot on the use of that word, but I I absolutely think that's what he was. Um, you know, nodding towards in that moment. Oh, yeah. I, I agree with all of that. And then on top of that, he is a comedian. If he'd said my brother, you know, he I mean, he wouldn't be Larry Wilmore. You, you do want to take a little bit of a chance and push something linguistically uh, if if you're him instead of, you know, some platitude spouting person. So, you know, I mean, you almost kind of had to do it, I think. Um, yeah, well, again, in his in his you know, it was obvious through his whole set that he was trying to push the envelope. Yep. You know, so so of course he would he would push it at the end. 
um, by using a word that, frankly, only he and a few other performers could even use in that moment. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, Seth Meyers, um, you know, is mm-hmm. not going to use I'm not going to be word, saying that word now. You know, at the end of his set, right. uh, Stephen Colbert is not going to use that word, uh, but but he was able to uh, he was able to use it and and communicate all those things that I said. Um, you know, in 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 a couple of sentences. Well, Eric Deggins, uh, presumably a year from now, we'll be having a similar conversation. Lord only knows who it'll be about. But thanks so much for joining us today. Well, we know who Obama thinks it will be. Yes, we do. Because <laughs> he said she'll yep. have a great time. Exactly. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Uh, thanks very much for joining us again, Eric. And we're going to take a little break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to tell you a story about um, a very different kind of topic. It's it's about a company uh, looking to set up shop on a campus in West Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, send ultimately students to the public school system uh, with tuition money attached. Detrimental paralyzed in my thoughts, parasites in my stomach, keep me with gut feeling, y'all. Gotta see how I'm chilling once I park this luxury car. Hopping out, feeling big as All right. Uh, Tonight in the town of West Hartford, there's going to be a public information hearing uh, at 7 p.m. at Town Hall to discuss the future of the UConn West Hartford campus uh, and a proposal by the Weeming Education Group to purchase that property directly from the university. Um, It's quite possible. We don't know. We uh, producer Betsy Kaplan called a lot of people, uh, and we really were not able to get anybody from the town of West Hartford to talk about this. But we do know, thanks to the reporting of Ronnie Newton in Weha.com, that uh, this article by Laura Krantz, a reporter for the Boston Globe, was wildly and madly and excitedly uh, circula- circulated uh, around West Hartford this week. And it may be one of the reasons that the need for a public information hearing was felt, or maybe they have it planned all along. I have no idea. But this plan basically involves a company, uh, and Laura will tell us more about it, that intends to run a a private academy on this site. The site's about, uh, I think, about 50 acres. Uh, It's uh, for sale. It's not going to be used by UConn anymore. The town has the uh, right of first refusal on purchasing it. The town, I think, pretty clearly doesn't want to purchase it. We can get into the reasons why that might be true. Uh, But then there's this concern. Uh, As uh, Laura reported, uh, students will be there, mostly from China, uh, and they will transfer out of this academy into the West Hartford Public Schools, taking with them tuition money. It looks like they'll take $13,000 uh, or, or put $13,000 into the West Hartford School Kitty uh, in order to have them there. Uh, this is at a time of declining enrollment. Uh, it could be argued that the school system could use these extra students and their tuition. But Laura Krantz, first of all, uh, welcome to our show. Hi. And so um, as you looked at this, uh, first of all, tell us what you know about the Weeming, I hope I'm even saying it correctly, I don't know if it's Weeming or Weiming Education Group. What are they? Right. So it's actually Weiming. Weiming, okay. Um, Weiming is a Chinese company. It's based out of Beijing. Um, They have about 40,000 students, they say, that they educate um, on campuses across China. Um, So this company actually runs private schools. And um, the students, you know, pay a tuition. They go to a private school, just like we might think of a private school here. Um, but the company specializes in partnerships with schools in the United States. So they already have a number of schools across the country um, who are their partners here in the United States. And the students um, spend about two years studying in China, and then they transfer to a school in the U.S. to complete their um, or high school education, and then a lot of times they'll be earning a U.S. diploma as well as a Chinese diploma. Um, and so, you know, up until now, we've seen 
um, that Weiming has these partnerships, right? You know, two years in China and two in two years in the U.S. or or one year in the U.S. Um, this proposal in West Hartford is unique because this would actually be the first time uh, the company would build its own school in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they'll have their own academy there, but then from there, people will go to the local schools. And, and what, the way you're saying it, it sounds like this isn't the, the part where they go to the, the local schools and pay what amounts to tuition money uh, out of pocket or out of, out of Weiming's pocket uh, is not unprecedented, right? This is already going on? Right, that's correct. So, so there's two proposals um, actually in West Hartford. Uh, a short term and a long term is how I like to think of it and how the officials have explained it to me. So the short term would be what they do, you know, at schools other places in the U.S. Students will come just for two years. They'll be educated in China for ninth and tenth grade. They'll come to the United States and go to school at West Hartford, um, the two public high schools there, uh, for 11th and 12th grade. They will pay $13,000 tuition um, to the public school district. Um, and they'll study for two years. The, that's the short-term plan. The long-term plan um, is the one that's more unique, you know, that we haven't really seen before. So this would be when, um, if and when, and, you know, we'll, we'll learn more tonight, Wyoming purchases that 58-acre campus in downtown West Hartford, um, and then they would create an academy there where the, the students would go for ninth and 10th. So they would go there for ninth and 10th and then transfer to the local public schools instead of coming over from China. Um, the officials have said they also could stay in that school all four years in the academy. Um, but the thinking is that many of them would like the kind of immersion experience they could have by um, spending their last two years in the um, in the West Hartford schools. And, and of course, the tuition, right, they would bring with them to the public school district. So that's the that's the long-term plan that, that we've heard about here. So, um, and by the way, if anybody has a question or a comment, uh, you can call at 860-275-7266. You can tweet at us at WNPR, Colin. Once again, the number 860-275-7266. So, uh, Laura Krantz from the Boston Globe. I mean, to us, from a certain perspective, this kind of makes sense. I mean, we have so many other kinds of trade deficits, but here we're basically selling surplus capacity. A lot of public school systems have declining enrollment numbers. Um, so you, you you figure out what the, what the sticker price is, basically the per pupil cost, um, and, and you charge them that, you put them in there, you keep the system humming. This, it, this would look to be, you know, a, a U.S. system, a public system, as it happens, selling excess capacity to somebody else in the global marketplace who wants it. it on the, on the, if you put it that way, it doesn't sound, sound like such a bad idea. Definitely. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, potential positives here, right? So one of, is, one of them is what you just described, declining enrollment. It's a real phenomenon. It's happening all across New England. Um, it's actually happening to a, a greater degree in some of the districts around West Hartford. Um, but, you know, the officials told me there in West Hartford itself, you know, they enroll about 100 fewer students every year than graduate. So they're basically losing about 100 students per year. And so if you, you know, think into the future, that could mean, you know, teachers being laid off, schools being closed, things that people really shy away from. So this represents, you know, revenue from these students. It represents, um, you know, more more students in the district. Um, and so in a lot of ways, you know, the, um, the administrators see it as a positive. You know, of course, you, 
don't even have to say, it, it will also bring, you know, diversity to the classroom. You know, this will be students from another culture. They'll be interacting with the students in the U.S. Um, so those are definitely some of the things that the administrators see as a positive. And and it looks as though that you know there at least the, in the rhetoric of this so far there may be opportunities for the exchange programs in the other direction. Uh, for the most part, I think people think that's all to the good. We are going to com- compete in a global marketplace. We already do. Probably the more savvy we are uh, about China and its society and its economy, the better uh, that all may be good. But there's another conversation going on right now, and it ha- has to do uh, with not only uh, public high schools but but college educations as well. The the influx of money that's coming in with students from other parts of the world, probably primarily Asia, um, and and gobbling up not just excess capacity, but at the college level, capacity, making use of our educational system in a way that freaks at least some people out. I mean, is this is your reporting on this particular thing part of that overall conversation? Yes, definitely. Um, so this is something that um, is happening at the high school level, but it's very much tied into what is happening on the um, the college level. Um, you know, a lot of students increasingly from China and other parts of the world um, are wanting U.S. college education experiences and college diplomas. And so any way that, um, you know, they can compete in the college application process um, and get a leg up, you know, it can be advantageous for them. So having, you know, already had experience in the U.S. high school um, could help them potentially on a, a college application. And so I think it's very much part of a, um, a larger trend as far as, um, you know, students from around the world uh, wanting more and more to go to U.S. colleges. Um, let's uh, grab a call here from Mary. Hi, Mary. You're on the air. Hi. So I work on Park Watershed. It's a 501c3 over the watershed area east of the Metacomet Ridge, which includes West Hartford. And There's a lot of concern about uh, West Hartford development practices. They're heavily developing a lot of landscapes um, that were once nonprofit landscapes, and they're maxing out the development footprint. And I'm just wondering, um, is there a kind of green schools agenda? Could there be? Is there any discussion about that? Because the landscape of of the West Hartford Extension School includes a pond, a small stream, a fair amount of open space. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a great opportunity for a green school that both China and Connecticut and West Hartford could benefit from because that's where a lot of growing uh, regenerative cultures are going. Yeah, I, I don't know that that's part of this proposal. I certainly haven't uh, read anything about that, and, and, and Laura may have more to say about it. You're absolutely right, though. There's tons of wetlands and floodplain, uh, in, you know, uh, on this property. Uh, it's one of the reasons that it can't be easily developed for other things. It's also not zoned for other things. It's basically uh, in a single-family residential area. It's got a special permitted use uh, as a school. You couldn't sell it to a developer to do something else with it. Uh, but but you're also right that if, so if you wanted to study the fragility Agility of wetlands and floodplains in increasingly dense, uh, dense semi-urban areas. This would be a great place to do it. But um, Laura Kranz, do we know much about the specific curriculum that that academy would, in fact, have for the the ninth and tenth graders, and possibly eleventh and twelfth graders there? Uh, we don't. We don't know specifics um, yet about the curriculum. Although I did, um, in my reporting, take a look at the contract that um, Wayming has signed with um, the district for this, this shorter-term plan, right, when the students will come for two years. And, um, and there is a section in the contract that talks about how West Hartford school officials will work with, um, you know, Chinese counterparts to develop 
a ninth and tenth grade um, curriculum that kind of matches with what West Hartford so that then, you know, hypothetically, if the students were to funnel in 11th and 12th grade, um, they would sort of all be on the same page. And so that's actually one of the um, the concerns that folks have, which um, I think it's important to point out that in addition to uh, these potential positives, there are a lot of different concerns that folks have. And one of them is, you know, that potentially the school district uh, staff, the st- teachers and administrators might be, you know, stretched a little thin if they have to, um, in addition to the duties that they're doing right now, um, start developing, you know, this other curriculum, this special curriculum that could be taught in China or at that academy. That's one of a, a variety of things that people um, sort of are, are curious and hesitant and concerned about. Yeah. I mean, presumably this is a, an advantage over the way it's been done in other places um, simply because, yeah, you can, you can make it match up a little bit more. Uh, there have been other situations and not just uh, with Waming, but with lots of other programs where students show up from another country uh, with very little preparation, uh, have all kinds of needs, uh, and meeting those needs may even exceed that per-pupil tuition that they came in with, you know, if you ha- have to do other stuff to accommodate that or, or, or match up with that. Uh, presumably with an academy right there, uh, you, you begin to solve that problem. Last question for you, Laura Krantz. Uh, the other thing that's gonna, gone along with this in your reporting is a re- report out of Michigan. There's at least a one group in Michigan saying that Weeming uh, is not entirely uh, handling the F-1 visa status of its students on the up and up. And I know it's a little bit difficult to know exactly what they're saying or whether what they're saying is valid. I think they operate out of a closed Facebook site. What did you find out about this? Right. Um, So I'm glad you brought that up because that's a a key part of this whole um, narrative here is that Wyoming actually has a record in the United States. And it's it's been we're operating in Michigan and some other places as well, um, and they are under inve- investigation um, by the Department of Homeland Security, which is the, the part of the federal government who runs the, the student visa program. So they're the ones that also provide oversight over that program and make sure that folks are um, using it correctly. And so in Michigan, as they are proposing to do in Connecticut, um, there is a one-year requirement um, if you're going to a public school from uh, another country or on a student visa, you're actually only allowed to attend for, for 12 months. And in Michigan, as they proposed to do in West Hartford, the students would actually study for two years. Um, and so there is um, an investigation going on into whether or not in Michigan, Wyoming has been operating within the law as far as um, that 12-month time limit. Now, the way that they do it is that the second year, the students are enrolled in a, a local university. Mm-hmm. And um, while they do take some classes, um, like dual enrollment, they are also attending the high school in that second year. Um, so the same situation has been proposed in Connecticut, and it's still you know, under investigation whether or not um, this is a way around that 12 months or whether it is, in fact, um, you know, a legal and okay way to structure it so that they're able to stay in the school two years. But it is a it is a serious question, and it's one that, you know, folks in West Hartford are now thinking about. Uh, I did want to say one thing about that per pupil cost. I'm glad you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a there's concern that these students coming to the district, you know, with um, perhaps limited English skills and um, just not too much familiarity with the the way that um, the U.S. education works because. It's completely different than the system in China um, that they will actually require 
extra resources just to sort of get those students all on the same page. And so you know, they'll be charging them 13000 but actually the uh, per pupil cost in West Hartford is, there, is about $1,500 more than that. It's about mm-hmm. 14500 um, and so what the officials told me was that the reason that they arrived at 13 was taking out the special education costs, and so that's where they came up with the 13. But there is worry that, um, you know, potentially this will take additional resources that um, might make teachers stretch a little bit thin um, if they're having to all of a sudden accommodate a large number of students um, who aren't familiar with um, the system. Absolutely. Well, uh, more will be found out tonight at 7 p.m., meeting at Town Hall. Uh, talk about all this stuff. Laura Krantz from the Boston Globe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to take a break. Before we take the break, let me just say, first of all, we're not going to have a lot of time after the break, but I probably could squeeze in like a couple of calls if there are things you want to talk about. Not necessarily about this, uh, but uh, well, I'll set a few political ideas up. We're doing a whole week of political shows uh, the way it is shaken out this week. Today's show is going to be even more political than it was today. But anyway, our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet at us, at WNPR Colin. We'll be back after this break. And welcome back. This is the point where Kyone Wolf usually says the thank yous. Kyone Wolf is off today. Uh, so I will say the thank yous. Uh, we, we have sort of a, I wouldn't say skeleton staff exactly, but we're a little less fully staffed than we typically are. Uh, we're at the end of one group of interns. We've got another group of interns uh, coming in, so things are a little light that way. Uh, Kyone isn't here today. So uh, Betsy Kaplan is running the board uh, and managing the various crises, which have included the fact that our main guests for our, our A segment with about, I don't know, was it like 15 minutes, 20 minutes before show, 20 minutes before show, 10? You're saying 10? Whatever it was, uh, uh, we found out that that person, for medical reasons, could not come on the show. So we had to very, it's not for nothing that we called the show The Scramble. Producer Josh Nalea is man- manning the phones. Usually we have interns uh, doing that. Uh, so uh, thanks to Josh for stepping up for that today. Uh, that's about it, really. <laughs> I think that's sort of who worked on the show today, would be the three of us. All right. So, um, and I should also say, we, we're going to do open phones right now. I've got about five minutes, so if there's something you want to call in about, and it could be, you can take your pick and call in about anything you want. You can call in about all the, you know, we've got, we're going through all kinds of interesting stuff here at the station, too. But I, I think most people do want to talk about the political season. Uh, I have some words from Andrew Sullivan that I will uh, share with you at the end, uh, and they may provoke your thoughts a little bit. But I do want to say that we are doing mostly political shows this week. We uh, Today we were going to be a little bit more political with uh, the segment about Paul Manafort, the, you know, now the chief advisor to Trump. Uh, tomorrow's uh, show is going to be about political stagecraft. Josh King uh, is going to lead that off. He was uh, a behind-the-scenes guy in the uh, Clinton White House. Uh, he's got a book out about sort of, you know, the stuff that you don't see that contributes to your political impressions. Um, Wednesday is going to be a, a, a sort of a historical show about the fact that, oh, yes, this campaign does seem to be one in which the rhetoric is a little heightened, a little personal, sometimes a little childish, uh, hot-headed, boorish. Uh, however, it's really not the first time that, that, in fact, American political campaigns have often been characterized by just the most venomous and overheated kinds of rhetoric. So we'll be talking to Gail Collins and historian Matt Warshower and, 
I'm not sure who else. And then uh, on on Thursday, I'm kind of convinced. Well, I'm not just kind of convinced. Uh, I, I know that if you are listening to public radio, you're not listening to conservative talk radio. And in conservative talk, conservative talk radio over the last six to nine months and for the next six months, a very different story is being told. Different things are being said. Different allegations are being made. There's a completely different audience being spoken to. So um, we're going to talk about that. Um, conservative talk radio uh, host Mike Gallagher is joining us. Uh, I think is Michael Harrison. Michael Harrison. And I think who's uh, sort of an expert in talk radio is joining us. He's the editor of Talkers, uh, which is the trade publication uh, of uh, of talk radio. We'll just, we're, you know, every once in a while when I'm coming to work, I'll just flip it over to the, that station I used to work at. Uh, and I'll either catch Rush Limbaugh or one of the local hosts. And, you know, just things are being said that you, uh, you know, you wouldn't hear here anyway. So what's that other truth? What's that other uh, parallel reality? Let me quickly uh, close by saying the very interesting article has just gone up, I think, on the New York Magazine website by Andrew Sullivan. It's, you know, I've kind of been waiting for Andrew Sullivan to have his big say uh, on the campaign season that we're seeing right now. And he's basically saying America's never been more ripe for a revolution. Uh, he says those Democrats who are gleefully predicting a Clinton landslide in November need to both check their complacency and understand that the Trump question isn't really a cause for a partisan schadenfreude anymore. It's much more dangerous than that. Those still backing the demagogue of the left, Bernie Sanders, might want to reflect that their critique of Clinton's experience and expertise and their facile conflation of that with corruption is only playing into Trump's hands, that it will fall to Clinton to temper her party's ambitions. It will be uncomfortable to watch since her willingness to compromise and equivocate is precisely what what many Americans find so distrustful. And yet she may soon be all we have left to counter the threat. He does perceive the Trump uh, rise as a threat. Uh, He writes, she needs to grasp the lethality of her foe, moderate the kind of identity politics that unwittingly empowers him, make an unapologetic case that experience and moderation are not vices, address much more directly the anxieties of the white working class, and Democrats must listen. Uh, It's a much longer essay than that. Uh, it's by Andrew Sullivan, who's always pretty great. Um, oh, Art, you called up a little bit too late, uh, so we're going to have to say goodbye. Uh, but listen to the rest of the shows that we have this week. Uh, I think you'll find them all very interesting. Uh, maybe you'll feel that we're drowning you with politics. But we're going to go back into history. We're going to go uh, into a whole other part of the media. I don't think you'll feel it's the same old, same old. Thanks to everybody who pitched in. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>